Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 90. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Christian Moore. Christian is a science teacher at Oak House School in Barcelona, Spain. In addition to teaching secondary science and IB biology at Oak House School, Christian also organizes the school's annual science fair. Christian works with fellow faculty members leading PD on topics in psychology and pedagogy, focusing on evidence-based practices. You can follow Christian on Twitter at Biogoggy. <laughs> Welcome, Christian. Hi, Aaron. Thanks. Oh, great to actually hear your voice for the first time. I feel like you are somebody who I've gotten to know a lot over the last year, like literally in the Twitterverse. Um, and then it actually dawned on me when I was doing my show prep. I was like, oh, he's British. Like he's going to have an accent. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. Yeah, because I listened to your shows and they're all Americans. And I was wondering what, what they would think of my accent on me. Uh, I, as as a, a proper Anglophile myself, uh, I have no problem. This may be the only episode I could get my wife to listen to. Um. Really? <laughs> I mean, really? But I don't it, have the stereotypical accent because I'm from the North, so I, I, I'd like to know what she thinks. Yeah, it's it's my it's music to my ears as we were talking about uh <laughs> before beforehand. I'm I'm quite used to listening to listening to northern accents uh and yours is like very well schooled compared to uh, oh I don't know like a a, a Milner or somebody like that. Um <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's the years abroad have softened it a bit and and working with the um Spanish kids and having to be understood, you got you got to speak a bit a bit clearer. Yeah, you can't really uh come in and 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 really hit the hard slang uh <laughs> you have to clean up the accent and i also also realizing while i've spoken to a couple of other people who are at international schools uh they were always americans who had gone abroad as opposed to uh somebody who is international to the united states who is then beyond that abroad at other schools so um this is really cool yeah it's, it, it is cool and um my, my international school is quite different as well because it's almost as if we're half international but we're, we're also half spanish as well yeah. And also in the in the show prep for me, because I were I think it's about three years ago, three years ago, my family and I on our, our, our February vacation. And we're recording this um, just just before uh, we have a February break in um, in Massachusetts. Um, we went to Paris for three days and then um, Madrid for four. Um, and so I got to have a feel of that. And while well, Barcelona and Madrid are quite different, I know you had some time in, in Madrid and then we took a train out to Toledo. And, and so I have a like a, a feeling of affinity for being in Spain in February. So there's another uh, nice, nice echo from my history uh, having this talk now. Yeah, we get some great weather in February. If, if the sun's out, it's warm. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I we were. You said that on one of our our pre show uh, uh, messages back and forth. I think my response was, "Don't rub it in." Yeah. Um, I think literally we had an ice storm the day that <laughs> you <Yeah>. said that. <laughs> we we do not have lovely weather in February. We have pretty much the worst weather of the year um, in February. <laughs> it's one. Of, it's one of the good reasons for moving from England to Spain. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even that. I think I still think we get it worse than England. Um, oh yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. England's not that bad. But my my wife uh, is Spanish though, and and she can't even handle English winter. So I don't think she's going to be moving to your place anytime soon. 
<laughs> All right. Well, we've uh, we've now done the official uh, uh, podcasting from different places, checking in on the weather uh, deal, which uh, one of my favorite podcast uh, crews, uh, the This Week in Virology, This Week in uh, Evolution, those guys, they always start their episodes by talking about the weather. Uh, and I feel like I've been, been sliding into that the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> um, but uh, I do want to get to the questions I like to ask everyone. And yours are, again, super fascinating, um, having, having, you know, messaged you about your background and, and talking about those type of things. So I want to hear, um, how did a, a kid from Manchester become a science teacher? What, what led you ultimately to being uh, in the classroom? Uh, it's quite a, a funny story, really, because uh, my mum is an art teacher. She taught me art at school and it never crossed my mind to be a teacher. I just knew that I loved uh, biology. So when, when I was looking at universities, I, all I cared about was studying biology. The problem was halfway through the course, I was getting a bit fed up of England. And you meet so many people in England uh, from abroad. You have uh, the Erasmus program in Europe where you have Europeans um, go for a year to a different country in a different university. And you, meet, you just meet so many people. So by the end of my degree, all I wanted to do was just go, go places. Um, and I, I didn't really think about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I just wanted to go and explore. But the lucky thing is, uh, for English speakers, if you want to move abroad, you can always teach English and there's always job. So, um, I, I worked in some bars. Um, I was in Spain in a while, for a while working as a waiter and I saved up money. Um, and I took a course to be an English teacher. And then I moved to Chile where I worked for a year. Um, but that job in Chile was your typical, uh, Ethel job where you're, you're going to businesses, um, at strange times, you're traveling between offices and different parts of the city. And it's not, it's not the best job. It's a job that allows you to travel. Hmm. But then when I, um, I did a year in Chile, I moved to Colombia, um, and I was in the right place at the right time. I sent my CV out to some universities. And they had um, a program that the government had offered to run where they would um, get some highly skilled um, teachers. Um, it, and when I say highly skilled in Colombia, it meant, it meant teachers who really, really could speak English very well. And they would be paid to go into some uh, state schools, which were not in the city. Hmm. And they hired me. And so somehow I, I managed to get into working as a, as a state school teacher in Colombia, which normally would be impossible because you'd have to go through a whole load of uh, bureaucracy to get through into being a, a, a civil servant. And, 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 that and that was the real change there. It was, it was working in, in a school rather than in offices with business people. It was, it was working in that environment with the with the children, with the teachers, your own little community, um, um, and, and, and seeing how, how people progress and knowing their brothers and sisters. And, and then you, you get to know their mums and dads as they pick them up. And as we all know, the, the school in itself is your own, is normally your own community. And I got to the end of that year and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, but <laughs> I, I had such a good time. Um, and I, I really got on so well with the, with the teachers and the students. Um, and it was, it was a bit of a, a strange time because I was going to be leaving um, to, and I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but, but I'd had this amazing time as a teacher. And I, I just really, really enjoyed teaching. 
and one of my um year 11 i suppose that would be grade 12 in america like that's like mm -hmm. your, your oldest yep. in the school and one of them just said to me he said your future's in the classroom you've got to be a teacher and and it just kind of clicked and it made me realize that i'd had this great time um teaching and and that's what i wanted to do the problem was i just didn't want to teach english what my real passion is biology and and that's it from that moment home I, on i just went home and, and researched and it was i've got to go back to england and train to be a biology teacher because i just i just knew that it was a great job wow that, that is great and it's funny i when you talk about that i think of all of the um the advertisements um, you see here in the u.s um about like when you're like a junior and senior i think they really sort of hit you when you're in that oh my goodness i'm got to decide what i'm going to do for the rest of my life <laughs> kind of time you know that 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 moment yeah. when you're in that junior senior year in front of the side um and for me just sort of as you described it uh i always viewed those jobs the going and teaching english in um there are always opportunities for me to go uh it was more in asia like there were lots of opportunities to go to um uh, go to Southeast Asia or to go to um, even pl places in China um, and stuff like that to teach English when I was in school, uh, when I was in um, my undergrad. Uh, but just as you said, like, I think people who were doing that in a lot of cases were like, yeah, I'm just going to push the decision of what I want to do when I'm a grown up two more years, but this will give me a chance to travel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, you put it off a lot, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you go back to England, um, and is that where you get your your schooling to become a biology teacher? What does that What does that even look like to go back? Uh, well, first, I, I actually moved to Madrid because I knew it, it would take a year to apply, um, mm -hmm. and I knew that I would have to go for an interview. So I knew that I had to be close. And and one of my uh, best friends from university was was um, in Madrid, and he had been teaching English, so it was an obvious choice. So I moved to Madrid. And while I was there, I applied for the PGCE. That's what, what is that's that? the, the PGCE is the, the course that you do in England to be a teacher. Um, it's called a postgraduate uh, certificate in education. Okay. So you, you, you do uh, this uh, course after you've obtained a degree in, mm -hmm. in, in whatever course you do. So uh, I, I applied um, to, be, to be a science teacher because that's how you do it in England. You, you might be a specialist in biology, but you, you're expected really to teach all three. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, then it, and then it was back, yeah, it was, it was back into, um, into the classroom. And, and, and it's, it's a tough course, eh? It's a really tough course. It was um, a real shock from having this great time teaching uh, to going back into the English system. And, it, um, and it's, it's really manic, you know, really intense. Um, uh, system and it, uh, compared to what I'd had before, um, it was difficult. It was really difficult. What's what's so difficult about it? Is it like just loads and loads of content, loads and loads of reading? Um, yeah. Is it a lot of writing? What what what's so what demanding about the program? Because honestly, I I think of my undergraduate degree in biology and my graduate degree in education, and the graduate degree in education felt like it was it was easy compared to the undergraduate work in biology. Where we, the, the PTC, you spend um, a majority of the time in schools. Um, okay. Um, but then at the same, the same time, you're expected to be completing master's credits and writing essays and, and, and researching. But when, you, when you're in the school, you're also uh, expected to be teaching lessons. 
um, uh, and, and you're being observed uh, for those lessons and you're getting feedback and you and at the same time you have to be collecting evidence about your practice to be able to prove that you're you're a capable teacher um, but just planning those lessons when you when you're a new teacher uh, you know that's it's a huge amount of work you, you especially if you're a specialist in biology and you're asked can you take this year eight class um and teach them some physics some forces and you're like oh god forces and then you have to work out what they've learned before what they're where they're supposed to be going and then you actually have to learn some things about forces because they hadn't done it since you'd been in the school yourself you know um and and all all of that just sucks all your time away because you're planning this all this work and then on top of the suddenly evening oh i've got these essays to write and then i've got this and then during the school day you're teaching lessons and if when you're not teaching lessons you're observing the teachers of the school so all that time is taken away uh, it's it's a it's an intense year uh, really intense I, di- I didn't realize this, but I, I think I, I that was the program I designed for myself because um, <laughs> wow. my first year teaching, um, I was full time working on my master's program. Actually, I was overload taking my master's program. Um, but the difference was, is that for all of the education classes where we had to like design lessons or write things up or come up with projects and stuff like that it was not expected that you were in the classroom. So I was able to sort of double dip the work that I was doing in my school as part of my job over and just say, oh, here's an example of what this looks like. Um, And so I was able to sort of fairly efficiently do that. And I don't want to suggest that it wasn't like absolutely insane to try to do all of that work (laughs) in a single year. Um, And I don't know that I could have done it if I wasn't 22 and, you know, full of energy. Yeah. but yeah, I, I I can very much like you brought back a lot of feelings for me because uh, that yeah, was exactly yeah. that feeling of that first year for me, um, which I thought was sort of insane in retrospect. But um, I can completely feel what it's like to try to um, I was literally teaching physics that year um, as part of my teaching prep and had not taken physics since, gosh, my my sophomore year of college. Um, so exactly the way you're saying, like I had, I really didn't study physics deeply. I had taken a couple of college level courses, but I was planning to be a bio teacher, um, but they needed a physics teacher. So I was filling oh. in. So. Oh, I, um, that, that's brave. <laughs> well, the, the good thing for me is um, I literally had uh, the greatest teacher I ever have ever worked with in my entire career. It's, it's funny looking back on it now, but, uh, my department had John Kaduki that year, uh, who now works at UMass and is a, uh, a, a education professor now that he's retired from the classroom. Um, he was just the greatest mentor. Um, and like he, he was, he had such a calm and easy demeanor. Um, but he, but he was so good at what he did as a physics teacher that he literally made, there nobody in the world could have made that year an easier year for me to teach physics as somebody who has barely enough physics t- background knowledge to teach that yeah. course um so i was very fortunate yeah i suppose um i suppose one of the one of the biggest problems we've had in the uk um recently is the expectation that teachers are kind of like their own islands and and they're supposed to um reinvent the wheel a lot and produce all mm-hmm. their own resources for themselves so when you're not a non-specialist, you're teaching uh, physics when you're a biologist and you're supposed to produce your own curriculum, that's really, really difficult. And you know that it's not going to be as good as if a physics teacher had done it. Hmm. Is that, so there are no, 
well, I, I don't know how to say this. Like for me, in a lot of instances, I think a lot of teachers in the U.S. do it that way as well. But I think that's sort of more stubbornness than, you know, it's cultural stubbornness of, oh, I need to make these things up. Um, but since we've developed sort of the online communities that, that we're all on now, I feel like there's a lot more resource sharing that goes on in the U.S. Is it that not really the case in, in oh, no, England? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think... I think uh, things change only over time, I think, and they're yeah. changing now. But when I started, it was uh, there was a lot of worksheet sharing, <laughs> um, and um, and that might be all good if you really understand where this is going, where, you know, where it fits in, which part, which words are that important, um, which is really uh, the the specialist who knows a biology teacher who really knows his biology will know how this exercise fits into the bigger picture and be able to link all the things up. But if you're not a specialist and you pick someone sharing just a load of worksheets, it's very difficult to, to understand what the, where the emphasis is and, and what vocabulary is important or what concepts are important. Yeah. I also do think that there, there is a, um, again, reminding me of, of working with some of those teachers early on. I remember one of my cooperating teachers who would, she, in early, the, early in the year, um, this was a teacher who I, I co-taught one of the biology sections. And I remember her showing me like the first week of school, this is my file cabinet. This is where all my files are. These are all my copies. Um, because again, this is really, I'm not that it was pre-internet, but it was pre all of our stuff being on the internet <laughs> the days. Uh, she, she showed me the file cabinet and she's like, here are all the handouts I made for last year's curriculum, um, you know, and all that stuff. So if you need anything and she showed me everything is. And then when we would be like co-planning and talking about upcoming units, she would say, oh, okay, I'm going to make this up and I'm going to make that up. And I'm like, well, why don't we go to your file cabinet and look at what you did last year? And she just literally would just make up new stuff all of the time. Um, and that was her work pro I don't know that I would put that on all teachers, but I do know a couple of other teachers who are like that, who don't seem to use their resources from the previous year. They seem to almost be making things, trying to make everything better every year, which means making something new all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think I prefer to improve on, on what's already done rather than work from scratch every year. Yeah. And again, I think that was also time and place. You know, I think with our digital files, that's a much easier thing to do now um, oh, yeah. <laughs> than yeah. it was back in the, you know, we're talking mid nineties at that point. I don't think most people were, uh, had big stores of digital files of their, their, their worksheets at that time. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a different age. So, uh, there, yeah. so, uh, I think based off of that, one of the things that based off of your, your background and how you got into the classroom, uh, one of the things that sort of has come up is that you have spent, you know, a dozen or so years in, working in schools in Colombia and in England and in Spain. And, um, I've literally only taught, you know, uh, less than 150 miles from the high school I graduated, um, are the sum of all of the schools that I've taught in. And I've taught only in one state, the state I got a diploma in. Um, I went to college in the same state. So, uh, or, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around getting all those perspectives, but, um, you know, what are some of the things that you learned from teaching in different parts of the world and, and sort of how's that informed your, your arc of your career? Yeah, the first thing that strikes me really thinking about it is the, is the school culture amongst the, the staff. Um, in, in Colombia, the, everybody's just so warm, relaxed, and, and the staff and the, the students are really, really smiley, happy all the time. Um, and there's not so much of a rush. Um, you, in Colombia, you'd often... The, the English side of me, I'd rush in the door and ask um, one of the 
directors a question really quickly and he would he would he would stop and say hi christian how, how are you doing how's your day been and then and and he, he would kind of force me into the whole ritual uh of, of saying hello and how you are before asking the question you know but in england it's it's completely the opposite to that where it seems in england the the pressure is so much higher that everybody's in a rush all the time uh, the days are quite intense you're rushing from one lesson to the next um you're rushing for your lunch because you've got to get these emails read and replied to um and 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 that's a real it was that was the the big the big shock for me when i came back to the uk as i was saying it wasn't just the the course itself but it was the the culture of of the rush and the always always having to be on and always having to be your best mm-hmm. um, and and that can that can really wear you down quite quickly if if you're not careful. And then in Spain, I mean, I work in international school, and supposedly it's a, a British school, but but actually we're half staffed by Spanish teachers, and it's worked so that they actually complete the Spanish system as well as gain um, international qualifications. So we do have in secondary a real Spanish feel, and in fact, the the head of secondary is Spanish herself. And and what's different in, in the Spanish system is it's it's almost halfway between Colombia and England in terms of intensity, but they're very democratic in Spain. Um, and the teacher is highly respected um, by the bosses. And it's almost like the bosses are very close in terms of power to to the teacher. Lots of meetings are democratic about changes, big changes, big decisions are often ran through big meetings. And, and there's pros and cons to that because the meetings can go on for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. um, and if, if teachers don't like something, then, then they can have a big say um, on what happens. And that, that's very different to my experience in England where the power is much more in the hands of the bosses and uh, you're often just informed of what is going to happen and, and how you will do things from now on. Whereas in, in, with my Spanish colleagues, it's, uh, it's all a big discussion where the thing, we agree with things, where we, we disagree with things. And, and often things aren't changed because not enough people agree, agree with them. Uh, and and it, it's a really interesting culture in our school because we've got half British staff and half Spanish staff. We have, to, we, we have to get to know each other and work together, even though we've come from different, different backgrounds. Yeah. And you're, you're in Spain and I know that you're, you know, you're fluent in both languages. Um, as an international school, does the school get more or less run in English or is it a back and forth or, you know, does it depend on who you're talking to? Um, how, how does yeah. the day-to-day operation work? Yeah, it really depends. I mean, you've got to remember we're in Barcelona. So actually a lot of the teachers speak Catalan. Um, uh-huh. as well. So we've got the three languages going on. Um, meetings, um, can, meetings can switch very quickly between the three languages. Um, sometimes people have to translate to people in the corner what's going on, especially the, the new British staff who've come over often don't speak very good Spanish or Catalan and, and someone's having to translate. And then, and then someone will have a question and it might go back into to English. Um, and it, it's, you have to work around it. Um, and you, sometimes you'll get, you'll get emails that are completely in Spanish. And, um, and they'll be put through Google Translator, which doesn't necessarily do a good job. It, it, 
it's more of a um, you just you just the way the school is because we've got both um we've got well we've got th- the three languages it's just something we just deal with on a, on a daily basis really <laughs> yeah it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating way of thinking of it. And when you talked about culture, I feel like uh, my school is aspirational to be like the Spanish school, but ultimately probably um, has some of those historical, uh, it run a little bit more like an English school. You know, the, the buck ultimately stops with the people who run the building. Um, there are some genuine efforts to make it democratic um, that are in there, but at times it does feel like <laughs> that doesn't actually happen. Just decision makers make a call and they're like, well, we're going to do this. Um, so it, I think it's better to be in one system or the other. I think I would rather work in, you know, a democratic system, obviously, but being in a middle system is sometimes strange where sometimes you feel like you're being asked for your, your opinions and voice. And sometimes you're not, um, is very strange. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you, you, it's like, you wouldn't, you like to know what's expected of you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And when some of the some of the staff at our school feel that they have a a voice and they can really really go against certain decisions very vocally, um, mm-hmm. and and to the new UK staff that can be like, wow, look, you know, this school, you know, people say things, you know, um, yeah. and but after a while, you you just kind of you kind of get used to it and you you understand that the teachers have more of a say of of what goes on in the school. Well, what ends up happening is when. Even if with the leadership does want some sort of democratic, you know, process to go on, if there are a series of decisions that are made from the top without input or with limited input, input from a small group as opposed to a larger group, and I think that's more or less how things get done in my school, when you disagree, but you haven't been engaged in that process and you have good points to make, you're put in an awkward situation. Is this the point where I step up and I go talk to somebody and let them know that I think that there are issues with this? Or do I just stay quiet and I wasn't part of this decision making, so I should just, you know, go along to get along kind of way? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's, it's a, I, I do fun, sometimes feel like I'm caught in the middle on this place, especially as somebody who's, you know, veteran and has experience and has like seen a lot of different things. Um, yeah, I, I'm intrigued by the democratic process, which I, I don't want to sound like we never go through that because I definitely, um, hear echoes of that in ways certain things have done it been done gone on in my building but i also know that it's it's not as consistent as what the way you're describing it yeah it's definitely a culture thing because um it's it's the way the spanish state schools are run um, mm-hmm. and um, they often don't in england you'll have a, a head to, of the school who who wants to be a head and um, they want to be a manager of a school Mm-hmm. Um, but often in Spain, the the head of the school is considered just another colleague on the same level, and everybody's they're all teachers at the end of the day, and they're all even even if you're a boss, you're considered to be a, really just another another teacher in the school, and, and they're all trying to pull in the same direction. That's a very very cool perspective, and I, I love hearing the differences of of schools, and this is this is a really a really neat one. All right. Well, I'm going to totally shift gears on us. I'm going to go a very different direction. Um, and I want to talk probably about the way that I think I understand you the best, which is through your writing. So over the past few years, you've been sharing your thoughts about teaching and learning on a blog, uh, which is titled Teaching Biology. It's actually bio, bio, 
goji.wixsite.com. Um, I'll put a link in my show notes for everybody. And and I'm first curious, uh, before we get into the, the content of it, what sort of led you to starting a blog um, and, and what have you gained from the process of posting and sharing what you're thinking about in terms of teaching? Um, I, I mean, I've been on Twitter for since I started teaching, really. Um, and I, I, on Twitter, I was an observer for a long time. I didn't, I didn't really, because I was a, a new teacher and I was still learning a lot. But what I, what I noticed a lot on Twitter was that the physics teachers were having um, great conversations. What, what I thought was great, but they were talking about specific concepts in physics and, and how they should teach them for conceptual understanding. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the, the, there just wasn't that much conversation on Twitter with the biology teachers and on the same, on the same level. And then I, when, when I started thinking about it more, I thought I'm going to start searching. Um, and it was actually when, when I started searching that I found your, your podcast as well. Um, but I also found lots of physics teacher podcasts. Um, and I think yours was the only biology teacher one I actually found. And I thought, well, I'm I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna find any more. I, I may as well start contributing and seeing if I can start conversation. So, the, so the main thing was really was I wanted to contribute to this space where to try and to try and cause some discourse on pedagogy in biology. Um, and the second reason was because when you write, you really do solidify your ideas and you clear them up and you make them much clearer. So there were, for me, it was those two things. I wanted to clear up my ideas, but I also wanted to have people to talk to about my ideas, which I wasn't really finding online. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the point about clarifying your ideas was I think the natural piece that I would, I would have thought, um, but the idea of start using it to start a conversation, um, it now makes a lot of sense about how you share your stuff on Twitter. Um, and like you write your thoughts, but you are definitely somebody who throws those things out there. Um, you ask for people's opinions. You, you, I think more than many people I know who write, you actively solicit um, and engage people in conversations on Twitter about the things you've written. And um, that makes a lot of sense that if the writing is intended to start a conversation, um, I think you more so than other people do a nice job trying to put your thoughts out there um, so that people will contemplate them. Um, yeah, that's it. Like, um, I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to, to, to get the um, people talking. Um, but bit by bit, I feel, yeah, I ask for people's opinions and I'm, and, and I'm building up a group of, of, of people who are starting to reply more often, which is good. Yeah, I will say this, and I don't know if this is going to come across as a compliment. I mean it that way. Um, I will say when I read your stuff, a lot of times I feel like I have just finished a long philosophical conversation with John Darko, and I am um, a little bit lost in the woods because I feel like I have walked into a conversation that that you have been having with somebody else on philosophy, and I'm walking in like 20 minutes in the conversation, and I was like, wait a minute, how did we start this conversation? Because you you do get to a very deep place very fast, uh, which is, I also feel the same thing with John Darko, <laughs> uh, who I love and is one of my favorite people to talk about teaching. Um, and I saw you two interacting on Twitter the other day and I was like, oh my God, they're going to dive off the philosophical deep end real fast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I find that your, your, your writing gets deep into the philosophy really fast. So have you found the sort of that community online of people who, who really like to, to dive in um, and get into the, the weeds of the philosophy um, sort of at the point where you are? Yeah, I mean, bit, it's, uh, it's, 
it's happening now. I'm starting to find people who are more willing to to talk about um, the, like you say, the more philosophical parts of of teaching biology. Um, but uh, but uh, with Twitter, you you know how it is. You have to build exposure, and people have to follow you, and it's a slow mm-hmm. process. And and now that um, the people are starting to read a bit more what I'm doing, I am starting to find people who are willing who want to talk at this about these aspects of the biology curriculum yeah yeah all right well this gives us the natural flow to the thing that i, I wanted to really talk about was one of the more, your real recent posts um and i could have very easily done this about several different posts um <laughs> like when i was going through and reading through your blog and going through all those uh reminded me of a couple of ones that i had read in the in the past but um you know, this year in 2020, you wrote a post that was called "The Knowledge Curriculum in Biology: How Retrieval Practice and Knowledge Organizers May Distort It," uh, which I think encapsulates a lot of the philosophy that runs through many of your writings. Um, is this balance between these different aspects of curriculum development? So, in this particular post, you explore how teachers approach their curriculum. Uh, or how a teacher approaches their curriculum will reveal their approach to biology as either a descriptive or an exploratory science. So you, you're looking to just see a, a teacher's philosophy um, from the way they approach their curriculum. And so first, do you feel that this is a fair takeaway from your post? Am I describing what you were trying to do? And then also, how much retrieval practice would I find in your curriculum? What do you? What does your curriculum look like if you're looking at science as either being descriptive or um, exploratory? Yeah, I suppose the main aspect of the post was more that that we can affect the philosophy of the children, um, mm-hmm. depending on on our curriculum design and the pedagogical tools uh, such as retrieval practice mm-hmm. uh, that we that we use um so i i came i came to this quite a few years ago where i realized a lot of what i was teaching made sense uh, to me because i already had a large bank of knowledge of biology mm-hmm. but really from um a, a student's point of view it was it was purely descriptive knowledge and I often see this with non-specialists, physics teachers who have to teach biology will sometimes um, say sad things like, um, I just want to teach a real science. And, <laughs> uh, and, and it's clear that it's not just our students, but, but these other science teachers, they sometimes can view biology as this descriptive science, as in we come to a topic and we, we say what there is. Um, in life and cells have these organelles and these organelles have these functions which is really just a a description and students could produce a a drawing they could um, annotate the the cell itself and with the functions they could do a drawing of a human body annotate the organs they could do a, a production of a leaf and annotate a leaf and this is really quite common in biology i think the danger is when we stop there and that becomes the most important part because we really we've only described an aspect of life and if we asked students to be able to explain they would they would struggle because there, there's no there's not been much linking so if we have a curriculum that is mainly sequenced so that students are just describing what there is for example in a cell what organelles there are and what their functions are and then we further back this up with pedagogical practice like retrieval practice, which really 
enables knowledge to be learned, then we're just building this philosophical view that biology is descriptive. When what I'm trying to say is that the curriculum design will decide whether those practices like retrieval practice are, are good or not, because the retrieval practice is just practicing what you've done in your lesson. So if your lesson is more of an explanation of biology rather than a description, then the retrieval practice will just enforce that. As you're saying this, it reminds me sort of of the philosophical dilemma that many have, uh, myself included, when you try to shift your grading practice towards a more standards-based approach um, where grades are not punitive, they don't measure anything that's busy work. They really measure a student's progress and development towards ideas. And that if a student's early progress is off track, but then they improve that, do their do their grades, what gets it end up being reported out to parents and on their transcripts and that, if they at the end of the course they really understand the material, are they penalized for having struggled? Um, early on in their development and and really breaking that down. And I think in a similar way, we were all taught probably biology as a descriptive science so that we could learn the content. And then later on, if you study deeper, you start to figure out how to apply it. But if we don't actually get into that application and we spend too much time on that, you know, making sure everyone knows all the vocabulary and knows all of the terms and can identify all the pictures, then we, as you said, distort the student's perspective and think that biology is just a bunch of stuff um, yeah, and not an active practice practice. I actually had a student, an IB student, and uh, this was quite a few years ago. Um, and, and I taught the, the, the curriculum in the order of the topics and, mm -hmm. and the IB biology curriculum begins with cell biology. And one of the very first things they do is, um, label a cell and the ultrastructure of a cell at that level. Um, and then you go on to molecular biology and they're learning about proteins and, and you, you've learned a lot of stuff. And then by the end of the year, when we were actually in human physiology, but obviously we know that she needed knowledge of cells and, and proteins to understand human biology. And then she was saying, ah, it all links. And I was thinking, that sounds great, but why after, uh, after a whole year, you know? I'm expecting my students only to link knowledge at the, after a whole year. And I, and I just started to realize that the, the curriculum structure is, is, not, is not good if, it, if we're starting with lots of description and hoping that students will be able to see all the links much, much, much later on in the curriculum. And I think we should be making the links right from the beginning. Hmm. So, so does that mean that if I was to look at your curriculum now, you're not following those IB units in that description early apply later? Or so what does it look like for you? What do you, what are you, how are you assessing your students early on in the year um, to help them get beyond just that descriptive uh, retrieval? Well, uh, assessing, uh, I think for me is, is a, is a funny thing because I, 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 do, I really do want to work on conceptual understanding. And I feel a conceptual understanding, we know, is, is very murky business. It's very difficult to observe. Um, but also, it takes a long time. Um, lots of exposure, lots of practice, lots of thinking, and lots of contexts until students really click and start to get this conceptual understanding. So I, I prefer really to assess much later mm -hmm. um, in terms of summative assessment. Whereas in the classroom, um, before that, it's more about 
continual questioning, questioning all the time, linking back and forward and, and seeing if they're actually getting the links and, and not just seeing if they get it, but explicitly making them see these links continually backwards and forwards. And then when we get to a point, I will, I will think, okay, now I want to, now I want to see what, what they know, but, but I'm, I'm going to have to give that a bit of time. Um, but, but anyway, to go back to your other question, yeah, my, I, I don't follow the, the topic order. Um, mm. I did at the beginning because I was new. Um, and then I started to, to, to not like it. And, um, and I think at lower levels in my year seven class, that's, I think that's grade eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my own curriculum that I've, I've designed my, myself. I think it's much easier at those lower levels. And when you get to IB level, the content can be quite specific and, and quite high level, especially the higher level biology, that it can get quite hard. Um, so at the moment, I only have um, my own curriculum for the standard level. And then when I get to higher level, I'm, I'm still trying to, to work the, all that out. It takes quite a long time to, get, to, to work it, all this stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like uh, from a sort of a, an assessment standpoint, then, um, are you relying more on sort of open response type questions that give students sort of space to work out concepts? Like you give them a stimulus and then they're working things things out or giving them uh, a lot of a lot of background and then asking them to to make leaps when they are getting to those summative assessments? I suppose in the summative test assessments, uh, um, uh, I, I don't I don't want to risk um, giving them something that's too difficult for them to do. So mm-hmm. really, I'm 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 looking for um, are the do they know the stuff because that's important. Um, mm-hmm. And then, for IB. exactly, you're not going to pass the exam if you don't know your stuff in IB. Um, but also, are they making the links? Um, so in, in my year seven classes, for example, um, I can do, I, I make a lot of my own multiple choice questions, um, where they will have to infer knowledge, um, or just no knowledge. But I, I often find that they, it's very, it's very hard for multiple choice questions, um, to show, uh, linked knowledge in biology. And that's because biology, living things are systems and they have many links and you have lots of mechanisms that link through um, such as oxygen passing through many systems until it arrives at a cell. Uh, There's lots Mm -hmm. of linked knowledge there that that you really can't pull out in a multiple choice question. So for for that sort of knowledge, then yeah, I'll have open-ended questions. Um, With with year seven, for example, it could just be, um, how do the the systems of the body work together um, to ensure that all the cells of the body are kept alive and just see where they go. Um, and, and that's not something that um, I would grade. Um, I think that's it's almost like a fool's errand trying to grade something like that. In year seven, I'm just, what I'm looking for is, are they, are they getting it? Are we making the links? Are we getting that conceptual understanding? Um, and I'm lucky enough to have a, have a great boss where our grading system in year seven is, we, we we more or less the graders um are they are they doing what they should be doing at this age or or do we or do they need to um do some extra work um, i don't need to assign a grade to that i need to i need to look at it and get this holistic view i can get some qu- quantitative data from multiple choice questions and, and and other things but i get this holistic view as well from just what they are able to write 
So what kind of, so do, how do you report out grades to them? I, I guess that I'm now realizing my ignorance. I, I'm coming from a very American perspective, uh, you know, uh, report cards, are there A, B's, C's, D's? Like what, what kind of feedback do, to those, those year seven students get? Um, and how do you communicate to your parents their, their, their grades as they're progressing? So in my, in my year seven class, I have three year seven classes, which is, which mm -hmm. is, and for, for year seven, um, at the end of the term, I, I will literally, um, per, per area, kind of like if we've done some physics or some biology, um, for a specific concept that we've been, we've been looking at, I will just say, um, um, are they meeting the expectations or are they not meeting the expectations? And, mm. um, and every subject teacher will, will do that. There'll be a little bit more detail in the, in, in English and maths. And then that just goes out to the parents. Um, like, like that. So there's a, it's, it's sort of a, a, a standards based type approach then like you either get it or you don't like, <laughs> yeah, and there's another trust there, uh, which I really appreciate from my bosses that, that I'm the expert in my area and, and I, and I, and I'm working for this, for this understanding of my students and they trust me to say whether I think at this, at this age, you know, they, they're, they're doing okay or whether they, then they're not getting it. And then as they move up, um, and as you've mentioned before, they're working both in the Spanish system and the, the IB system um, for the older students. Uh, how do their, how do they get their feedback or grades reported out? Yeah. So, so then when they go, the year, year seven is the last year where we do fully British. And then suddenly they go into this kind of um, amalgamation of British Spanish, but <laughs> grades have to be the Spanish system. Uh, that's the way we do it. And then uh, then they get numbers, and I think it's more like the American system where they they get numbers, and um, at the end of the year, these numbers from um, give kind of like a, an overview of the the average grade. And then if they uh, if they get a below a certain number, then they're considered to be failing. Um, mm. they, I think they're trying to switch more towards. Um, are they understanding or not understanding rather than passing failing but they still have these numbers i think and i think they've just changed it we did have zero to ten but i think this last couple of years it's been uh, one to four um whereas a one is is um, you're not you're not passing i think that's that's funny the one to four is very very much like what we have from our our state feedback uh when students take our state exams um they get a one of four different levels from um i don't know if they call it failing or fails to meet ex expectations or below expectations um and then they have uh, needs improvement and then proficient and advanced um, and in our system if you get a one on that lowest system you have you need to retake the exam um so it's yeah they do that in spain you have to uh, retake um an a exam i think they can make a new one uh, to that you that you can you can pass um but um but to be honest i i, I quite prefer especially at the lower ages when there's when there's no real need they're not getting a qualification um it's for me it's more about are they get, conceptually understanding this course mm. it's more important to me yeah and it's funny because my kids who come to me and I, I deal with with freshmen who would be the the year right above your year sevens when they come in, they are so points focused um, on their grades. They're like, because we do a system from, you know, zero to 100. Um, <laughs> I, I often say that it's it feels very arbitrary at times because my 
you know, what's a, an 80 in my class and what's an 80 in somebody else's class, you know, we try to make them comparable, but they're, they're just not They're It's such a big range that these, these discrete separations that we have between these different levels is there is a degree of arbitrariness with them because every classroom is a little bit different. Uh, but the, my kids, when they come in, they are so caught up in their grades and like what letter grade they have. Do they have an A? Do they have a B? You know, what are their percentages down to the decimal point? They're like so numbers focused. Um, and that's because they're, they're steeped in that system really starting at like, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Yeah, that happens to our students as well. Yeah. All right. Well, as I said, we could we could go down this philosophy uh, side turn. Um, I find it's I, I find that at times, um, and I know that we, you you were mentioning that you're on a a bit of a break right now. So uh, so maybe you 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 can steep in there. But I think that you you operate on this philosophical level sort of all the time in the background. Um, and at times when I check in, I've opened up some of the blogs and been like, "Ooh, this gets deep real fast." I'm a uh, I'm kind of buried in grading and planning and all of that. And I was like, I'm going to come back to this later. <laughs> um, so I'm curious also when, when it is you go about writing, like, is it, does the things bubble up for you? Do you like, ste- like, like steep and struggle? And then suddenly you're like, yeah, now I have enough ideas to generate something or are they like, are they like one-offs for you? Like, I'm curious, a little curious about the process, like what leads you to write these, these, these very deep uh, philosophical writings about teaching. I'm just, it's a, it's a combination of uh, thinking and reading and, and yeah. uh, seeing and the feedback from the classroom, really, mm-hmm. what, what are my students understanding? But a lot, of, a lot of reading as well and into the literature on biology education, there's some really uh, quite good stuff out there. Um, sometimes um, it's not about pedagogical practices, but sometimes you find some studies that just um, look at what students actually understand then and they go to a number of schools and ask them all these questions and they realize kids are not getting this stuff you know um and you sit there and you think well why aren't they getting this stuff and then and i start trying to fix it in my brain and i'm and i'm thinking about it and then i'm i'm reading other things like i remember the 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 podcast uh, you did with um dr jason crean is it yeah jason crean yeah and and his stuff, uh, some of his uh, curriculum is genius, you know, and it really influenced, uh, it really sent me off thinking in a different direction for a while. And and this, these ideas are just bubbling away in my brain all the time. I'm like, I'm having to think about curriculum. Where do I want this? Where do I want my sequence to go? How do I want my my narrative hmm. to pan out? And then and ideas just come in and come and go. And then and I stagger in this idea, and I think I've got to write about this idea. Um, I've got to get it out. And then. I don't know, I get a moment at the weekend and I, and I just say to my wife, I'm just going to write this post. And, and then I write and I just go and I just start writing. Um, and then I've got something to work on. Then I've got, I've got some ideas to work on over the, improve the post a little bit, think about it a little bit. And, and then ideas start flowing that way. Yeah. And I will say you do have citations, uh, which is, <laughs> I always appreciate a blog with citations. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's always it's always I good. Say it's all my own ideas, you know. It's more I'm getting ideas from different places, and I'm 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 seeing what happens when we put these ideas together. What comes out? Yeah, I I now and as you say that, like I now think of getting you and John Darko and Jason Crean in the same room um, could either fix education or break it in such a way that would be really fun to watch how everyone puts it back together. So, because um, <laughs> you guys all you guys all do operate on a very philosophical level, and um, as I said, it's not necessarily. I'm a. I think I view like what I do in the classroom very much as like a brute force bench scientist. Like my approach is like I want to do something in the lab that's interesting. 
and then I sort of backfill to say, all right, what would be the curriculum that I can wrap around this? Um, but fundamentally, like I, I feel my job is very much steeped in like, like I want to just do biology um, and, and have my kids, particularly for my AP kids. Um, like right now, my kids are designing labs where they are um, feeding fruit flies uh, different foods to see if they can shift the microbiome of the fruit flies. Um, <laughs> and I'm designing a curriculum that wraps around that, um, which is hard, uh, because yeah. it, nobody else does this. Um, and so I'm trying to come up with a narrative and a story and I'm trying to do that. Um, and I have philosophy that drives why I do what I do the way I do it, but I don't know that I could sit down and write and explain it. Um, as particularly as eloquently as, as you dive into that. I think that's one of the fascinating things. I think I very much agree with a lot of what you write, but I don't know that I could write it. Um, <laughs> so that's as Claxton's implicit theories where yeah. he, he went out and teachers recognize that teachers all have pedagogical theory, even though they don't know if they have it and, and, and it caused these implicit theories. I'm sure if you started writing, it would come out. Hmm. Well, I know my theory, my, 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 my theory is very simple. Uh, my theory is um, students need to um, make, ask questions and make choices. And so as long as students are asking scientific questions and making choices about variables, they will then ultimately do science. And then it's my job to then frame those experiences so that they can scaffold out their skills to accomplish learning like that's that's ultimately sort of my driving force um, you, you teach ib as well don't you IB, I, I teach a i teach ap so um, similar 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 level um one year course as opposed to a two i do i just struggle in ib biology for time so much and i th and i see and i see a lot on on the internet the americans are so um lab driven they do so so much in the lab um mm. so and i always think geez how do they get so much time like the ib biology curriculum is so full you know mm. I'm always well, in a rush. Yeah, and so this is the the AP used to be like that. So before 2012 exam, the it was like you got we had Campbell Biology book, um, and it was you had to sort of teach the whole book to the point where we didn't even teach like the ecology stuff. We assigned the ecology stuff the summer before. Kids would come in and take a de an exam on like the second day of the year um, on ecology. And then we would pick up with molecular stuff and go because it was, we start, yeah, we start later in the year than some, like we start usually in September, whereas a lot of schools start in August. And if you start in September, you just didn't have enough time to get ready for that May exam and do it. And it was a lecture-based course. Like we, I, I tell my students all the time, we would lecture, you know, five days a week, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it was like a Socratic seminar type thing where there would be a lot of times where I'd post like a big question up and I would give them some stimulus and we'd have a discussion about it and they'd do some turn in talks. But fundamentally we were plowing through content. You know, we would have like these 70, 80 slide slide decks that we would cover in a week. And then we give them a test and that was, and then we would do a very simple lab one that could be done in like a 45 minute period that had fairly obvious answers. Um, and it was just so dissatisfying. I, I've read about that in IB. It's it's demoralizing when you, when you when you're just plowing through content. Yeah, and then and then fundamentally, they made a big shift in 2012, and then they re they realigned it a little bit this past uh, May in AP, and they just cut basically a third of the content out. Um, and so now, like, there's all of this space. So if you were able to plow through things in a sequential manner before, now you've got this time where you can have students do an initial lab and then a follow-up lab and then 
uh, my colleague and I who who work in the last couple of years. And again, this is sort of the disruptive nature of how I like to teach um, and also inspired by Jason Crean and all these other conversations I had. I said, well, what if we, instead of organizing into units, very much like what you were talking about, where we put content in a bucket and students can deceive themselves to think if I learn all of the descriptive things that go into the bucket that is, you know, molecular biology techniques or biochemistry, and I learn all of those rules here and I learn that here at this, you know, in this October month. And then I can move on to the next month and forget all of that because now we're looking at a different, you know, bucket of information. I was still seeing that in my students, even bright students, they were very good at school where they could memorize and get to the test, but then they couldn't retain that information to apply it two or three or four units down the line. And I said, well, what if we just, you know, broke that up and instead went at it and said, okay, let's do a big topic. And then within that, they have to understand little domains from everything um, and then we we align it. We we pull the AP curriculum objectives out and we we literally say, well, what stories do we need to tell this and then bring them together into a narrative? And so we, we teach in a very non-traditional, non-linear standard way of doing it, but we hit all of those learning objectives. Yeah, that's what I like. I think for me, the the design of the curriculum is the joy of the job. You know, it's uh, how the story, this building the story, building the narrative. How am I going to get them from here to here? You know, what examples can I use? You know, that's what that's what's fun. And I will say, I still, my joy is still, as I just was yesterday, um, <laughs> totally distracting myself, figuring out how I was going to teach something that I had just learned. Um, I, I like learning how to do things in science. Um, like I realized, uh, so we do a couple of different things with bacteria. And one of the things we're just doing is we're identifying different bacteria um, who can, that make um, antibiotics. We, we isolated them from the soil. So we did some collecting of soil from around our campus and we did serial dilutions. And I've talked about this in a few other podcasts. Um, it's, it's a very cool, fun project that I've been working on. And I realized that at the end, I could definitely do 16S sequencing for this. But I've tried to do 16S sequencing in the past and we've gotten very middling results. Um, and so I did sort of a deep dive on like, well, all right, how do people actually do this in the lab, in the university? And, that, and I realized that I had missed some things in the process. Um, and it was like, like dawned on me, oh, that's why these results are there. So like, I totally was geeking out from a like a materials and methods science solving a problem thing, which is I think fundamentally very much who I am as a person. I I like being at the bench and I like figuring out how to solve problems of materials and methods in order to solve problems that are fundamental biology problems. Um, like I enjoy that stuff. <laughs> I think that, I think that's really interesting how you're how your your view of the, of the subject in itself and the way that you approach it um, impacts the curriculum you teach. I think that in itself is really interesting. That's what makes schools really good when they have a diversity of teachers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I, I've been told by my colleague that I'm exhausting to teach with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Because because yeah. he'll come in and say like oh I really like this and I'm like yeah these are the six things I don't like about what we're doing these are the six things that need to get better yeah <laughs> um, or or okay now that we've accomplished that can we now move it to where I really want it to go like I say things like that all the all the time to him and he just puts his head down he's like yeah all right <laughs> all right well uh, I before before we wrap up I want to hear what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming years well I suppose. Um... I suppose it may come uh, as as a, a surprise, but uh, but I, I'm really really looking forward to um, just just getting better at better teaching biology. I just I really enjoy um, learning biology and 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 building the curriculum and and being with the students and getting them to enjoy it as well. You know, 
that's the big that's the big joy of the, of the job is being able to go every day and, and talk about biology to students and and see that they they enjoy it as well that's that there's nothing wrong with that um there's a hundred percent where um i think i wish everybody was there um, <laughs> just enjoying it um yeah i i think that one of the things for me that I have found, and sort of as I talk about the problem solving, is that when I get into that headspace, that's when I'm having fun. Um, yeah. And if I'm having fun, it's pretty easy for my students to, you know, like I never walk in. My kids never see me walk in and be like, "Now we're gonna, t I'm gonna teach this topic that I just don't enjoy." Like that just never happens. Like I, yeah. everything that we teach, I'm having, I've, I've tied it to curriculum that I'm deeply fascinated about. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what's good about being a teacher is we can we can develop the curriculum around what we know and, and what our interests are, and that way we can uh, show our passion in the classroom. Uh, and we can go into a classroom and we can talk about things we're really interested in. I mean, what a fantastic job! Yeah, it's it's um, at times the most exhausting thing that we could possibly do, but also um, <laughs> can be a lot of fun, especially if you like teenagers. Like I, I would say if you don't like teenagers, it may not be, you may not have a cutout for it, but if you enjoy teenagers and you enjoy subject and you like geeking out on pedagogy, I can't think of a better thing to do. Um, Definitely. Uh, all right. So, uh, when you're not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Uh, I've got, I've got two things really. Uh, one is playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a nice Spanish made guitar um made near barcelona it makes me feel feel good about where i live and um i play lots of folk and blues um although now that i, I have a seven month old uh, mm -hmm. I, I haven't been playing that much um but hopefully as it gets older i'll get back i'll get back to playing it what i've been doing a lot of instead is um my my other uh hobby is my oasis uh my kindle oasis uh, which has just tons of books on it. And I'm, I'm often reading like six or seven books at the same time. Um, and, and I just love having a Kindle, just being able to carry it around um, and, and opening whatever book I'm, I'm feeling like at the moment. Like you said, I've got some philosophy of biology books on here. And uh, sometimes it's like, it's a bit heavy, you know, I'm a bit tired, so I get out a novel instead. And um, it means I can really really get through a lot of reading as well having a having a kindle because we're with a baby you know you you can't sometimes you you're trying to rock him to sleep you can get your kindle out and hold it in one hand or sometimes you're on the metro and you're trying to stand up and you you've got your kindle in one hand and, and i just absolutely love it yeah i've i have definitely gone to the electronic reading um the last couple of years as well. Um, I also, I don't know what it's like in Spain, but um, the thing I've been taking a big advantage of is uh, my library. Um, I can download books from my local libraries um, and you get a two week read. And so as long as it's something I can get through in two weeks, which admittedly for me, I am not the fastest of readers. So uh, I have to then really commit to reading it, but <laughs> uh, to get through it um, or hope to that I can renew it. But I've really, I've been taking big advantage of, of downloading things on my own. Um, yeah, my, yeah. My local library. I do myself get to the library. Um, what, one thing I like to do as well is uh, uh, when I'm reading some articles um, mm -hmm. about uh, maybe pedagogy and, and biology, um, I can download them in PDF and send them straight to my Kindle. And so in, instead of reading on the screen, which I don't like, I can get the Kindle and read it quite relaxed. Nice. 
Yeah. Wonder if those uh those two pint PLC guys out in Kansas um are aware of your blog. I'll have to push them to they'll they'll now know about it because you've been on here, but they do that's a podcast where they uh do education research uh art, articles. Two pint PLC. Um that's Lawrence Woodruff and, and Michael Ralph, and they've been they've been going for a couple of years, and they talk about uh, breaking down journal articles that have to do with like broader educational topics. Um, and they both come from a science teacher background, but they don't just do science pedagogy um, article stuff. So, ah, oh, definitely, always, always. I mean, it's a bit of a jungle out there, you know. There's quite a few journals, there's lots of publications, and to find things specifically uh, on biology and things you like, you have to search for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I do know that from, from some classes that I've taken where I've tried to, you know, do the research on, on things. All right. Well, let's transition to, uh, before we get to picks, uh, what questions do you have for me? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm quite interested though, because I'm from the UK and, and we have our own national curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you've, um, changed in the last few years in America, um, to the, these next generation standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was I was wondering what what your opinion is of them and and um, how how are it, things have changed from the old system you had. So uh, broadly, I think the changes to American education have been positive, um, and both uh, the next generation science standards and the AP, which has made changes that kind of go along the same lines, um, and in both curriculum. What they have done is, in addition to giving content standards, like what is the what are the 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 key like descriptive informational things that that students should be able to tell you, having taken a course on you know biology or earth science or or chemistry, um, whatever that course is. They also have uh, science practices, um, and everything is viewed through that lens of the content in a science practice. So with Next Generation Science Standards, there are eight of them. Um, and so they are, you know, asking questions, uh, developing models, planning and carrying out an investigation. Um, uh, I, I'll put a link into uh, some of the really good stuff from Paul Anderson because he has a really nice group of them uh, that are together. And and so what will happen is when you go and pull a content piece out, can a student like plan an investigation that is about this concept that has to do with, say, photosynthesis. And so it's not just like memorizing the parts of photosynthesis and spitting back, but if you were given an experiment about photosynthesis, could they talk about wh- how the science is conducted and the, the component of the experiment? Could they look at the data and understand whether or not the data is meaningful? Did the person does it have appropriate controls in there? Um, is this modeling all aspects of photosynthesis? Things like that. So, yeah, I, I think that that change just from being all content-based standards, which is where they were before, to content with practices has been a huge step forward. And while I don't necessarily love the linear organization of the units or how they've put them into specific buckets, um, as I am, I don't feel constrained by that. And I think it's a, a positive step towards having students understand that they it's not just come and learning a bunch of, of nouns and spitting them back on a test, but you doing science is an active pursuit and that you actually need to, um, you have to be able to do things if you're doing science. So I guess that would be my takeaway. And, and as I said, positive change from the previous curriculum, which was just all a bunch of content. So in a way it's the, they want to see that they can apply their knowledge 
within the realm of, of designing experiments. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's not just designing experiments. I mean, there are components of like, you know, it mostly is about experimental design, but there are some, some things that then can drift off outside of that. And the, my one hesitancy I say about doing this is uh, we actually haven't seen what our state exam is going to look like. Like, what does the assessment look like? Um, mm. Because the standards can all be well-meaning. And I think there are people, as you mentioned, Jason Crean earlier, who are doing really great things with respect to curriculum design and science practices and stuff like that. But at the end, if they only ask them questions that ask them things that are barely above the descriptive science, like if they're so scaffolding, so scaffolded that like really if I just know the content, I will be able to find the right answer in there. Even if they say that this is a question that's about designing an investigation, really it's about identifying the parts of photosynthesis. Like I want to see what the assessments look like before I... I give them a full stamp of approval. The The standards themselves are better. I, I do have some hesitancy about what are the assessments going to look like um, when they start to roll out. Yeah, I mean, the, dri the, the driver of the curriculum is the assessment. If the assessment, yeah. like you say, is descriptive knowledge, then lots of schools will just take a gear down and just start doing descriptive science again. Yeah, and I, when you were talking earlier about descriptive, I think that, you know, what ends up happening here, or at least what I have seen in many instances, is that when you teach, say, like an honors level course, like a high level course to younger students, they are often doing lots and lots of description. And as you come down to students who, who struggle more in school and have been tracked down into a lower level, um, honestly, they're asked to just like identify things. Like they're not even asked to describe, they're like giving, you know, pictures or, or processes. And they're, they're literally just they're not even describing the things. They're just identifying what is this part, you know. Um, so it's even lower level in terms of the the demand, the cognitive demands on them from a descriptive level. They're they're even simpler from a content standpoint. Um, so to have these application standards or these skill standards or practices layered on the top, um, I th I hope will make it so that. Um, all students, even students who traditionally have not done well in science, who have been tracked into what we call like lower level classes here, um, are still going to, are now going to have a better opportunity to engage in the practice of science, which I don't think is something that has always happened. But when, when will you get your exam then? Every state is a little different. The, the next generation science standards, while broadly adopted across the country, um, have been adopted in different states at different times and in different ways. <laughs> So um, actually what I described for next generation science standards is what we get in Massachusetts, which is we actually only get two of the three dimensions. There's also cross-cutting concepts, but Massachusetts didn't adopt those. So our assessment is not going to have one of the three parts of the, it's just going to be the science practices and the, and the content strand. Um, other states have theirs. And our first exam rollout is this year. So our first students will be taking and a version of the exam. So we should have a released version of the exam that is a version the students have taken uh, probably sometime at the end of the summer um, to see what what it looks like. And I've, wow. I've, been to, I've been to several presentations and I work on curriculum development in my district and I helped sort of design the tutorial for students who are most at risk for our district and, and I was part of that process. I'm not super concerned about our students. Um, I think we're gonna do just fine. But at the same time, I, I still want to see it. And um, my hope is that it is the right balance of 
practices and content and that they're what the state felt that they were describing to us is actually what the test does. <laughs> I hope so. so. I mean, I would be quite nervous myself. Yeah. Um, I, because of, I, I do also teach in a point of privilege. I teach in a very good school district who's always done very well. Um, and I feel like I work with a colleague who is on the item writing team for the state. So between her knowledge of the inside process of how um, exam items are written and my knowledge of the national standards and the and all of the other components that go into those standards in there we're the ones who came together to design like our our tutorial and then helped discuss that with all of our colleagues like we sort of ran the that we were the point people for what should our curriculum look like for this new change and i i think we're in a very good place but i i am still at a point of ignorance in terms of what does it look like when they roll it out for an exam because we legitimately haven't seen one yet. So I will, I will feel more confident once, <laughs> once they've actually rolled it out. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, normally, they, normally exam boards release at least a, a specimen paper. Yeah, so they've put out, um, and they have done some. So like right now there's a practice one that's posted up that is supposed to be of the style that has like, I think like, it's like a half exam basically. It's like 28 questions or something like that. So we can see sort of the style of the questions and the types of tasks they were going to do. They've released what their structure is going to be. Like they've they've given us some information. It's not a complete black box. Um, the standards have been out for three years, um, almost four. Um, so like we've known where the standards were going for three to four years. We So we've had the time to adjust our curriculum that way. They didn't like change the standards and then roll the exam out right the next day like it, they've given us time to ramp up um but we are now at that point where this is the first time we'll get to see what this version looks like um, so. uh, it'd, be cool. it'd be cool to know how it goes you know i, I like to i like to follow how countries are, are changing their curricular ideas yeah. well and again within in the united states because it's a state-by-state -state system i know that in some states it's rolled out very smoothly in other states it has not rolled out smoothly i know in massachusetts when we went through this process for our first round of of big state standards and i've been teaching long enough that i was when they first adopted biology standards because there was a time where we had no biology standards for our state like you just went to school and you got taught whatever um and i saw the first rounds of the exams that they rolled out for science and they were really not good they were they were really poorly put together they were it was not a transparent process. So this is back in like 99, 2000. They, they were kind of all over the place and they had like, I think too many bosses trying to make decisions about that. And then they took it away and then they revamped it and posted it out in 2006. And when they rolled out in 2006, I thought they did a fantastic job. I thought the the exam was exactly what they told us it was going to be. Uh, they had people who were like going out to the state, communicating teachers. They actually came to, if like, you invited them to your school, they would come. We invited them to our school. The, the people came and gave us a presentation. They showed us examples of items. They talked us through the process. They answered every question we had about the exam. You know, the state did a great job in 06. So I'm hoping that what we see here is like their second rollout of an exam and not their first, that they made a mistake, learned from it, learned how to roll out an exam. And now we're seeing sort of version two of that just with a slightly different set of standards um, than the last one. So Yeah, better, better to wait and get the better version and jump in straight away. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I have historically worked with some kids who've struggled through school. So I, I know that as we get into the spring and I've already had the conversations with a colleague who works with a high at risk group, um, she's, she is very nervous, uh, because it's of the unknown. Um, and I, I respect that and I'm trying to tell her 
to feel confident that we have done everything within our power to prep them, but I still respect her <laughs> uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. Well, good luck. Yeah. All right. We have come to picks of the episode. Uh, Christian, uh, right on brand. What is your pick of the episode? Yeah. My, well, um, true to the episode, mine, mine is a, a book I came across not, not so recently, but it's taken me a while to get through it is a philosophy of biology. But um, what's really good about it is it's written with teachers in mind. And so I've, I've read a, a bit of philosophy of biology and we often get the uh, usual stuff like what is a species? Um, mm-hmm. or what level does uh, natural selection work at? Or um, a common one is what what is life? You know these these philosophical questions. But there was some good stuff in this book that I've never really come across before, like um, the nature versus nurture debates. Um, whether whether really there is a nature versus nurture, or, or they're actually just the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really good ones about microbiology in there um and uh, some good topics at the end about um ethics um and there was a, a quite a useful one at, um for the for what's happening now about about climate uh, the climate change and the ethics of um looking after ecosystems and the, the philosophical uh, debate around that and even and there was a really some really good stuff about mendel as well that made me think a lot about about how teaching mendel and mendel only really uh, um instills a, a bad idea about genetics and biology that that everything um is dominant or recessive and and uh, we are what our genes tell us we are and, and things like that yeah this is very much informed how i've been approaching my uh my my genetics curriculum i've been looking at some of those same papers um about the genetic determinism that students are taking away it has been very much informed my curriculum this year so well, it certainly isn't light. A 762-page hardcover for almost $200 American. <laughs> yeah, you should get it for the library. <laughs> yes, this is definitely one of those uh, take-it-out-of-the-library books. But yeah, fascinating. 30 chapters. Um, it looks like it covers kind of everything. So, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, one of, it's not one of those books that you read from um, from page one all the way to the end. I mean, you, you really want to go through the contents and think, well, what you're interested in in the moment you know and, yeah. and like when i began I, I went straight to those chapters about mendel um and they were really good and, and for americans as well um there's some really good uh, chapters about um uh, religion and evolution um which i know is is uh, a, a bigger issue in america yeah in some places more than others but yeah definitely um <laughs> all right well that's that is a deep book i'm a, I, i'm gonna have to Figure out how to get that for less than uh <laughs> less than two hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, and me being on brand, I picked a book which it's funny. I read this book a couple of years ago, but I'm gonna I think I'm gonna reread it this winter, and it's called Spillover by David Quammen. So it's the full title is Spillover: Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic by, as I said, David Quammen. And some people may know David Quammen from his more recent book, The Tangled Tree. He's just a fantastic science writer, so I really have always enjoyed his work. But this specifically is about how, uh, you know, like zoonotic pandemic diseases come about. And as we are in the midst of coronavirus outbreak this winter, uh, it's very much on point. Like, how is it that as we expand out into uh, the habitats of wild creatures and as we bring those into areas where now animals that normally don't intermingle are now intermingling, we set up 
the opportunity for there to be recombination of viruses that have never uh, combined closely related species of viruses. I don't know if we want to call them species, but closely related viruses can recombine within a, a novel host and can produce a potential pathogen. So uh, we know that flus do this. We know that that SARS likely did this as well. And it seems like this coronavirus, which has components of uh, bat coronavirus in it and was found in that Wuhan uh, wet market, uh, the first case being in December 1st, being everybody who got that first round was tracked back to the same wet market in Wuhan. It seems like this is a very relevant thing for the upcoming years and, and not something that... Um, we should panic about, but something that everybody should be informed about. So if you like virology, if you like epidemiology, this is a definitely an interesting book. And also, I think, written at a level that if you don't have deep, deep knowledge of those things, you probably can get pretty cool access to the concepts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. very pertinent. And uh, actually on my reading list for a long time. Um, uh, and I, w I wish I'd got around to reading it now, now that all the students will be asking about coronavirus. So it's definitely something I'm going to get on in the next a couple of months yeah it's a it's a it's a good book um as i said i i read it years ago um and it tied into a lot of things but i i have a background uh you know background and a passion about both um you know microbiology and virology but also epidemiology these are things that i've always been sort of deeply fascinated on a personal level um so that this is the type of book that that very much speaks to me and i think as you said very relevant for this winter i'm gonna get on this book all right, cool. All right, well, Christian, this has been a great talk. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's like flown by. Like I, I'm shocked yeah. at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, thanks for joining me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, hopefully, you found this was a fascinating conversation too. Yeah, it was great. It was great, Aaron. Yeah, we should do it. We should do it again sometime when we when we've our ideas have evolved. Yeah, I definitely want to like now you make me want to come like I never didn't get to Barcelona. So I think my family needs to take a vacation to Spain. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, next time I have the opportunity to go to Europe, I've been trying to clamor to get that trip. Stop going to Disney World uh, and go to Spain again. <laughs> Spain's much more. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it more. All right, let me give my show credits. Uh, you please subscribe to Life the School on your podcast player of choice. Um, you can also go to patreon.com um, slash lots, and you can chip in a couple bucks a month to help support uh, me and the work that I do. Also, uh, I post my show notes up there a few days early for my uh, Patreon, so I push my audio up a few days early, and then I also post my show notes there as well. So you can get show notes there or at lifeoftheschool.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew tweets or at life of the school. Um, I was actually put on a list of biology podcasts to listen to this the past couple of weeks. I was shocked. I didn't know anybody knew about my podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, you can also follow Christian at uh, biogogy, B-I-O-G-O-G-Y on Twitter. Um, and I also will have this linked in my show notes on the website and on Patreon. So thanks all for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon.